Hello. Uh, this is Marooned on Mars with Matt and Hillary. I'm Matt. Uh, I'm Hillary. Um, and we're reading through the Kim Stanley. As you know, we're reading through the <clears> Kim <throat> Stanley Robinson Mars trilogy. As our loyal listeners already all know. All our loyal listeners, um, growing by the day or the week, maybe. In numbers. Maybe by the minute. I mean, even if they're not as individuals growing. Well, now, see, you're doing <laughs> wordplay, which is what people tune in for. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's the kind of high, the high-level thinking that we're, we're, we're known so for. so sophisticated. <laughs> it's like Dorothy Parker over here I'm s- <laughs> sitting with. So um, oh, we're hell. in the middle of Green Mars. Yes. Literally right in the middle of it, in the thick of it. Oh, yeah, this is, and, and the cover of my book fell off the this co- week. I saw that the cover <laughs> of your book fell off. We're reading this hard. Yeah. Yeah, we're doing wow. a lot of work. I'll take a picture of that and uh, put it on the web. It's a uh, yeah, with all your post-its in it. Um, we're in part five. Part five, which is called homeless. It's told from. I think last week I said it was from the perspective of Coyote, and clearly it's not. Yeah, it's it's Michelle. It's Michelle, but it was hard for me. I I think just the title of it, homeless, made me think mm. naturally of Coyote. Um, and mm-hmm. also I think just flip, it's so short, like it's, it's hard to like, mi- the word Michelle doesn't stand out that much, I think. So yeah, yeah. forgive me if I misled you, uh, faithful listeners last week. Um, well, and, and I also think that as we were just talking before we started recording that both this chapter and the next one have a lot of action and a lot of event in them. Yeah. Um, you know, and the we're we're getting not only action but action that's moving the plot forward. And in that way, like we're not as sort of unlike that the yeah. Anne chapter, we're not as centered in or the Nergal chapter, we're not as centered in somebody's consciousness mm-hmm. here because there because there's so much event, because things are moving forward quickly. Yeah. Um you know, I I noticed because I ripped the cover <laughs> off the book, I, or it fell off. I mean it was a mistake. Um but it it revealed the um, the quotations at the beginning. The right the the blurbs at the beginning, and the last one of them is from uh, Paul Anderson, who's an SF writer, as I'm sure everybody knows. Um, and his quote is: "A splendid book, utterly convincing, gives a sense of time passing and history happening, such as is rare in world literature." And I thought, like, that's actually such a great. I, I feel like I had not kind of condensed yeah. that thought in my own head, but. Yeah, these books are really amazing in the way that they give you not just, and we've talked a lot about how much thinking there is about history and when does history start and what's newness and all of those things. But even the way that like, uh, you know, at this point in Green Mars, I feel like there are all of these moments in these chapters where we, it gets kind of called to our attention, not only the time that's passed for the people in the book, but how long we've been living with them yeah, too, you know? Yeah, and there yeah. is this kind of, and in that way, there is some sense of our own experience of this temporality that isn't 
ours. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know whether that makes sense. Or no, not, it but. makes perfect sense because also it's just like the the amount of time you have to devote to reading these novels. It, mm. They're huge novels, so that by the time you get to the middle of Green Mars and they're referring to something that happened in the past. You really have to jog your memory to be like, oh, did that happen in Red Mars or did we just hear about it in Red Mars? Or yeah. when they come back to a place, you're like, I remember the, that name of the place, but I don't remember what happened there. And it's funny because it kind of mirrors the experience of the first hundred themselves as right. they get right. older and older and lose their memory. Um, one guy, and I don't know if he pops up in Homeless, but he definitely is in the next chapter, Tarakot who's mentioned is Schnelling. Yeah, Schnelling, right. And he's always mentioned, but you never, I don't think you ever meet him or like no, anything like that. No, but he's the one who was uh, imprisoned, right, in the prison where there's the big uprising in 61. Okay. And he has like a, he has some kind of like uh, collectivist theory yeah. that everybody get that there were, but he has like a small group of followers right. emergent out of that prison, yeah, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah. It's like, he's not a Bogdanovist. He's like, they have his own, he has his own little cult or something like that. Yeah. But they mention him like several times. Yeah. Robinson mentions him several times or her. I think it's into him. It's, but uh, several times throughout the course of the film or the book, the, film, the books. <laughs> but you never, ever learn what yeah. Schnellingism right. is. You never get a physical description of him. Right, nothing. right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we get these kind of like, um, which adds this sort of layer into all of these things that seem really important in this section of Green Mars, which are thinking about um, uh, how the ways in which human imaginary shaped Mars before we got to Mars still matter on Mars. And now we see the ways in which like, you know, we've seen a lot of how like, you know, people on earth, like what, what does Art Randolph know about the first hundred? Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, actually this chapter has, you know, a good deal to do with what does Art know about the first hundred? But like, you know, he already has versions of them in his head, Mm -hmm. you know, and John Boone has already become Boonism. Right. 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 Uh, and Arcadi, like now long gone, um, has you know left behind like you know followers. So so there's this this whole kind of like complicated like um, the sort of mythic version or the cultural version of Mars that preceded actually being on Mars. Um, but now this has happened in this kind of speeded up way mm-hmm. on Mars itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. That you know the people who we the reader know are also being turned into mythic. Yeah, figures right well and also and for ourselves mm-hmm. as well unless we want to go all the way back and read those chapters again right. because we have to rely on our memory but also the memory that's given to us in the books and the contested memories of the first and the deteriorating and right. contested right. memories of the first hundred right um so which brings us to like the first couple lines of the opening prologue to homeless biogenesis is in the first place psychogenesis the truth was never more man- this truth was never more manifest than on mars where noosphere preceded biosphere the layer of thought first enwrapping the silent planet from afar inhabiting it with stories and plans and dreams until the moment when john stepped out and said here we are <laughs> from which point of from which point of ignition the green force spread like wildfire until the whole planet was pulsing with veriditas. Um, and then the, uh, the next paragraph shows that this is how it seems from Michel Duval's mm-hmm. 
perspective um, as has been sort of indoctrinated into him as well by Hiroko, by his, his involvement these past 50 years or more with um, Hiroko's group, right? But this idea that psychogenesis mm. uh, precedes biogenesis or is biogenesis, mm. is mm-hmm. the true identity of biogenesis, mm-hmm. or that noosphere precedes biosphere, the ideas it precede the life, right? Right. Which right. is a completely counterintuitive way of thinking about um, how ideas work um, or how things exist in the world. Mm-hmm. But it's also the one that's most fruitful for thinking about ideology and how change happens. Um, you have to be able to imagine a future before you can enact it. And the imagination comes out. Yes, it's true that the imagination comes out of the materiality of your current situation, but the materiality of your current situation is also only identifiable through the creation of ideas uh, that explain it, right? Right, right. Well, and that's also interesting because then, you know, uh, we could think that also in some ways that idea... Um, that gets, you know, metaphorized or analogized in Michelle's mind here as psychogenesis or the noosphere, right, the the realm of, of consciousness, um, that those things proceed, you know, both lets us think about that sort of like, you know, that aspect of utopianism or the possibility of imagining something new that requ- requires imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also might make us think about the way in which um, those like old... Uh, you know, sets of cultural assumptions, right, or prior prior imaginaries or whatever they are, are also a kind of tether, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, as something I think we talked about last time, also provide lenses, right? Mm-hmm. And this is kind of, I feel like something about being with Michelle is mm-hmm. that, like, he is quite, because he is an intellectual, and as I think we get a lot of kind of... Um, gentle joking about in this chapter because he's French mm-hmm. um, he does tend to turn to these like philosophical to, to sort of philosophical conceits to make sense of something about the world right and that you know that both seems to be a way of producing a kind of explanation and there's an interesting contrast to when Sachs is thinking like you know no I have my scientific first principles and so I have to go from my scientific first principles to a description or an account or an analysis that can tell me something about history and how human beings interact. Mm-hmm. Um, and Michelle kind of goes in the other direction, right, from the idea, from the description. Um, but that both potentially produces a kind of freedom for something new, but it also is a way of continuing to be attached to stuff that's old. Right. Um, and that seems like, I, I was thinking a lot in these this chapter and the next chapter about how much... Um, we're not only thinking about the past of the first 100 that is like literally slipping out of their minds and therefore is more real in the stories that people tell than in any of the brains of the first 100, but also we're getting a lot of people thinking about their own childhoods yeah. too, right? I mean, and in that way, we have a kind of, um, I don't know, like that sort of like psychological or even psychoanalytic way of thinking about what a person is, is coming to seem like it matters mm-hmm. Even for these people who are new, this new kind of person born on yeah. Mars. Yeah. Um, just in terms of uh, Michelle and like this opening prologue, he, in situating himself among in the realm of ideas, like he he goes straight to antinomies, the the antinomies of French <laughs> thought of trying to reconcile mind and body. 
um, Sartre trying to reconcile Freudianism and, and Marxism, right? Um, and so living in that realm of ideas and trying to um, reconcile everything that he sees materially with, with those kind of contradictory ideas. And then um, the way that it ends, and then also being anchored to history and historical precedents, basically, right, right. in order to situate and contextualize his imagination. So the uh, the last paragraph of the of the prologue, so that human beings were miraculous indeed, conscious creators, walking this new world like fresh young gods, wielding immense alchemical powers. He's always looking yeah, for an alchemist. Yeah. Like in the in the Red Mars, I guess it was the Red Mars, or was he in another chapter in this book? I can't remember. Now, like my memory is shot, <laughs> but he like calls Nergal the alchemist, right? Yeah, that was in the first chapter. Yeah, of this the first book. chapter of this first book. part. Yeah, um, you know, he's always looking for the alchemist, alchemical power, so that any anyone Michel met on Mars, he regarded curiously, wondering as he looked at their often innocuous exteriors, what kind of new Paracelsus or Isaac of Holland stood before him, and whether they would turn lead to gold or cause rocks to blossom. Um, and this again calls back to. Michelle's chapter in Red Mars, where he straight up asks Sachs, can we turn lead into gold? Right. And Sachs is like, no, it'd be difficult. Let me find yeah. out. <laughs> let me yeah. let me look into it. Right. And then also uh, in the earlier part of this, um, the first paragraph of this prologue, they talk about life springing directly out of rocks. So right. this, this right. alchemical transformation, when does a mineral become animal or plant right when does a mineral actually spring to life right, right. and blossom and later on i don't know if in this chapter but certainly in para, in terracott we get uh, and and throughout the book actually uh increasingly we get the reference to ice blossoms and ice flowers yeah yeah and yeah. for me that's a major like i don't know what that means yeah. like are we talking about literal flowers or lichen that are simply living in the ice or are we talking about ice patterns that are forming on Mars because of the specific, you know, atmospheric conditions that like mold ice and water into different shapes that look like flowers, but that aren't really right. Like there's an ambiguity there, at least in the language, if right, that, right. that I, um, uh, it's hard for me to kind of like sort of reconcile or like make decide upon what, it, what they're actually meaning. Well, and it, you know, this, um, I think that the, um, so one thing is that like throughout the first part of Green Mars, we've learned a lot about what does blossom in conditions of extreme cold um, in the like, you know, essentially inhospitable conditions of something that's like the Arctic. Um, so we have all all of that time and attention that Sachs starts to pay to these things that are very small, right? These very small signs of life and livingness. Um, and there is a way in which I think, like, unless you are um, quite familiar with that kind of ecology, you know, you are picturing something that seems quite weird, right? And moreover, I mean, it just is weird anyway, because you're picturing, like, these uh, genetically modified organisms that are emerging and taking forms that like can be described through the kinds of forms that we expect of life on Earth, but are also at the same time different. I, I think that the really um, two things that what your comment just made me think of the in this prologue section. Um, one, I think there's a really interesting thing that happens in these books where we keep getting given um, like forms that we can use to try to think about 
the complexity that's in front of us, like mm-hmm. the social complexity, historical, political, but also uh, biological, geological, all of those complexities and how they come together. Um, so, you know, we have uh, Michelle and his love of op- oppositions and the semiotic rectangle, which he finds so useful. Mm-hmm. Um, although he also finds alchemy a useful thing right. with its reconciling of opposites. Uh, which is actually different than the way that the semiotic rectangle works because it doesn't reconcile mm-hmm. opposites, right? It's showing you how you how a concept is mm-hmm. structured through various kinds of opposition. Um, and we have Nergal's ability to see two things simultaneously mm-hmm. and, and his return over and over again to the green and the white, which does have these alchemical overtones and also the spiritual overtone of, you know, Veriditas, which both seems to be, both seems to describe something that somebody like Hiroko kind of knows how to make happen and also describes like a principle, um, a natural slash spiritual principle, right? A spiritual account of of something natural. Um, So those those seem to be sort of two different shapes, right? We've talked often about places in these novels where we get instead a dialectical shape to the way in which we see things relating. And I do think overall, like these novels maybe do have a dialectical movement to them. But I think that's an interesting thing that we get. You know, we're being asked to think like about how uh, the form that we give to understand how things work together also shapes the way in which we can understand them. Mm -hmm. And then also, I love this part of the prologue. Um, So Michelle has just thought in that bit that you read um, about how... uh, we, we he, he you know he seems to suggest as if the planet itself had felt mm-hmm. something missing, which was Veriditas, which was life, or which was the bio, um, and at the tap of mind against rock, noosphere consciousness against lithosphere the rocks, the absent biosphere had sprung into the gap with the startling suddenness of a magician's paper flower, which is like a crazy, just a crazy description. Mm-hmm. Um, although also a fascinating description, mm-hmm. the idea of this is like an act of magic. Um, you know, and also the idea that we have like consciousness, rock and livingness as these three different spheres, right? That's, that's fascinating. And then we get this really like, I think, fantastic paragraph or so it seemed to Michelle Duval, who was passionately devoted to every sign of life in the rust waste, uh, who had seized Hiroko's areophany with the fervor of a drowning man thrown a buoy. Um, so then we also have to think about like, you know, you take ideas up cause you need them. They give you some, they give right. you something right. Their truth is partly evident because you need that truth. Yeah. It had given him a new way of seeing to practice this site. He had taken on Anne's habit of walking outside in the hour before sunset. And we've heard so many of those, the before sunset scenes, right. With the Alpenglow. Um, and in the long shadowed landscapes, he found every patch of grass, a piercing delight in each little tangle of sedge and lichen, he saw a miniature Provence. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like, on the one hand, he thinks of himself as taking up a habit of Anne's, mm-hmm. you know, which should lead you to a way of seeing the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and when Sachs does it, he thinks, oh, I get, I get, I could say to Anne now, I also see Mars. Right, yeah. Um, and Michelle looks at it and is like, oh, Provence. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's like fundamental, like it's like a delusion, but it's also like what he needs and what he right, wants, like right. what's calling out for him and or maybe, what he calls out for. Right, exactly. And maybe something like very true there in like, you don't just shed that yeah. past, right? right? It's, yeah, it's not that easy to uh, move on from that. Right, right. So we like open with this, the chapter opens with this 
I think rather meditative section. Uh, and then we're really like, uh, off, mm -hmm. off and running. Off and running. I mean, this is a super action, action-y it's chapter. Extremely short and extremely action-y. And one, so basically what has happened is that, um, the previous two chapters have converged in this chapter because the end of Scientist is Hero is where Sax gets caught and the end of the long run out. No, 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 not long run out. The Ambassador right. is where Art gets locked out of his car and Coyote and Maya save him. So, and then this, and then Coyote and Maya and Art meet up with Michelle and whoever, what, whatever happens. I can't remember where, where do they, do they, are they meeting up in cars or are they meeting up at like a, are they in somewhere? Oh, they're and, just, they're just out in rovers. They're just out in rovers. Yeah. So, so these two, so these two lines of action in the novel have like converged here. Right. Right. Um, and uh, at sort of just the right moment because Sax has just been taken prisoner and Art Randolph is being integrated, however, um, awkwardly into the resistance. Maya is extremely um, suspicious of him. Coyote. Probably appropriately. Probably appropriately. <laughs> Given that he actually does have an agenda. He does uh, <laughs> at this point, which is just to acquire Mars, whatever that means right right i mean um, but he's working for praxis which yeah. you know he, at the beginning i mean he does talk about working for praxis although the more time he spends with them yeah the less i mean and it does not come out in the course of this chapter or the next that nergal contacted praxis right yeah nobody knows that no one knows that says nergal and us and the and art and art right but it's very cute the way he like um just like, oh, you could just drop me off wherever or I'll go with you, no problem. <laughs> and you can just take me back. And they're like, what? And he's like, I won't tell anybody. Like, <laughs> adorable, really cute. Uh, I love also that the um, um, the these this chapter and the next reveal just how smart Art yeah. is. That our first vision of him is this sli slightly hapless and it's a little hard to believe that he was really good at uh, right social engineering or whatever right. he described it as and here although initially you think like oh my god you know uh he quite quickly becomes uh somebody who well not maya but almost everybody else uh is willing to talk to on 250 uh uh every human was a great power every human on mars an alchemist and though michelle had given up psychiatry a long time ago he could still recognize in art the touch of a master at work yeah. He almost laughed at the growing urge he found he felt in himself to confess everything mm -hmm. to this hulking quizzical man, still clumsy in the Martian G. Uh, I, I, I love all their judgment, their prejudgments of, of art. No response from Maya or Michelle. And later when Randolph had gone into the rover's little toilet chamber, Maya hissed, he's obviously, obviously a spy. He was out there deliberately so we would pick him up. Um, and then uh about which she's she's basically right yeah she's totally right but she still they still have him in the rover yeah like, <laughs> you know like he must be a really good spy because even though you know that he's a spy he you're you're, you're still got he's still with you right right um, right uh i wanted to read the oh um and he was uh, so he's asking just full of questions right um randolph appeared perfectly open ingenuous friendly his swarthy face, almost that of a moon calf simpleton. <laughs> nice. This nice. is my strategy for meeting new people, by the way. 
his eyes watched him very carefully with every unanswered question. He looked more interested and more pleased uh, as if their answers were coming to him by telepathy. He has this power of just like drawing drawing things out of people. Yeah. Um, they just yeah. open up to him. Yeah. Um, uh, right. And we get great moments like on the uh, 251 uh, when they uh, learn about sex and they learn that he is um, being held prisoner in a in a prison compound and Maya says we have to get him out. Mm-hmm. The sex, Rand- that yeah, the yeah, sex, yeah. Russell Randolph was yeah, saying. Yeah. Wow, I can't believe it. Who are you all anyway? Hey, are you Maya? <laughs> hey, are you Maya Tatoyevna? <laughs> just Poitovna. Uh, the uh, yeah, I just that kind of like. Um, I, yeah. Well, I feel- you might as well let me go. I couldn't tell them anything they won't get out of Russell. Like he's so, it's sort of adorable. Yeah. Um, but then he reveals to them too, like, you know, they're not, he's not going to, you know, sex isn't going to spill the beans and, and art is like, Oh, there are lots of ways to do that. Right. You, you don't need to worry about it. And, um, you know, they, they can inject him with all kinds of stuff. Science, they have it down to a science. Never mind. Anyway, if you can tweak it out, they can usually do it more crudely. Maya, how do you yeah. know all this? Common knowledge. You know, like, this is another thing that the that the underground, that they have suffered by living underground, is that they do not know these new interrogation techniques right. that the transnats have perfected right. um, uh, on back on Earth. Right, right. And I think this is a kind of, I mean, we see this thing in this, in this chapter, we see that um, even if Mars is not, fully under control or is only notionally under the control of some kind of state or parastate or, uh, you know, transnet entities working together, some, you know, uh, it actually, there is something that functions like a state on Mars, Mm -hmm. um, given that, you know, a central function of a state um, is punishment, right, is imprisonment and punishment and this is discipline and punishment uh, yes it is (laughs) i think it doesn't foucault come up as like on on uh on a uh michelle's list of people who tried to reconcile oh no he comes comes up later he comes up later but he's not on michelle oh wait wait, they they later they come across a uh a colony who are um living in a kind of like Fourierist uh utopia also drawing on like Foucault, Foucault yeah. and principles which would be a great place to visit um but the uh <laughs> we want to live there yeah um but you know the I mean art knows about this because he's from earth yeah right um and there so there's a way in which we see that like um a certain version of advancing knowledge um, and advancing governmental apparatus and advancing the power of the state, yeah, the underground doesn't know about it, you know? And there's something, for me in this chapter, there's something quite shocking about seeing the prison, yeah. right? I mean, not only the the deep shock of realizing that, like, you know, the extraction methods they use have almost destroyed sacks, mm-hmm. but that there is an entire prison complex again yeah. on Mars, right? This is a thing that, too, like, um, that re- that uh, resonates with with me from the uh, from the next chapter actually, but from throughout the books where you're constantly coming across new settlements and new places that even coyotes never see. Yeah, yeah. You know, just like the side, like Mars is a whole planet. It's really easy to get lost or to hide things. I mean, they hide caches all over the place. They hide. They have hidden colonies. They have all these hidden things. Um, and it's not like. Uh, 
basically in stories or movies or whatever that I'm used to, that I'm more accustomed to is like, you know where everything is right. in relation right. to everything else. Like at the beginning of the story, the geography is pretty much laid out, um, you know, in the first third of the movie or whatever and you know where the spheres of action are going to be but here it keeps unfolding because it is indeed like an entire planet um and there's just no way you could actually ever actually map the entire thing or understand the entire thing yeah and i think in the in the sax chapter when when phyllis threatens him before his you know excellent if Mm -hmm. brief foray into being an action hero but trying not to hurt phyllis too Mm -hmm. much um uh, you know, like mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> winds him up getting uh, taken. You know, when she's threatening him, it really sounds like what she's threatening him with are basically going to be like a private security force for the transnats and like, I don't know, taking him into like some back room and like having him be essentially tortured yeah, by yeah. this like MRI extraction of memories or whatever this is. Um, but here on... Um, on 253, mm-hmm. they actually get to um, uh, they get to the place where the security compound is, and it's like huge and complicated. Yeah. Um, and we get uh, Spencer had been there since the beginning of construction, so we have two kind of like outside informants, right? Spencer, yeah. who has been living in disguise, right, and then. Art, who has a different set right. of knowledges, who are like there with them. Yeah, go, but start uh, at the paragraph ahead of that, though, because that's where the actual infrastructure starts to get the two craters on the inner bank. The two craters on the inner bank had been tented, as had big sections of the gridwork terrain on the outer bank, and part of the main channel on both sides of the Lemniscate. I don't know if that's how you say it. Lemniscate? I would say Lemniscate, but the Lemniscate I'm no geologist. Uh, but none of this work had ever been shown on the video or mentioned in the news. It was not even on the maps. So it's a, it's a black site. It's a black site. Spencer had been there since the beginning of construction, however, and his infrequent reports had told them what the new town was for. These days... This is the paragraph that yeah. just, I read this and was like, oh, right. Oh, my God. These days, almost all the people found guilty of crimes on Mars. And, of course, like, we don't even know who's, like, trying them, right? Where's yeah. the legal What's apparatus, yeah. right? Uh, all the Almost all the people found guilty of crimes on Mars were sent out to the asteroid belt to work off their sentences in mining ships. But there were people in the transitional authority who wanted a jail on Mars itself, and Kasai Vallis was it. I mean, that... Part of what that is, is like the last time we had been looking at asteroids, what we had been seeing doing the mining and the factories on them was entirely automated. Right, yeah. Right. But now we realize, you know, once again, like automation doesn't run by itself, right? Mm -hmm. Or it can be cheaper to like send human beings up there to make them do it or have it be convict labor. And also, and also, again, here, suddenly, like, Mars is so much, I mean, just like you were saying, Mars is so much bigger than we've been thinking of it. Like, there are enough people being convicted right. of crimes right. and sent to the asteroid belt, to obviously in numbers, Have right? a robust slave yeah. labor, uh, yeah. prison labor economy. Exactly. Right? And that... And yeah, it's just yeah. that oh. it's much bigger than simply a scientific outpost, right? That we... We have this, we're given in the Red Mars, this like very romantic, and I mean, in retrospect, um, extremely romantic vision of like these scientists going out and like debating about ideas and what is Mars and, you know, the, the romance of adventure and discovering new uh, landscapes and all this new stuff about the history of the universe and the history of Mars. And here it's just all boiled down to... Um, 
you know, the same old shit right. of locking right. people up and like using them for slave labor and uh, capital, like material extraction and capitalism, right. Right. essentially. And, and, or this, like, yeah, go ahead. Oh, well, I was gonna say, and the same old shit of like, you know, what's the distinction between the corporation and the state? Yeah. I mean, like, we really don't know right. here. Um, and there's no government on Mars because there's no government on Mars. Right. And moreover that like, uh, you know, state power, you know, if the, you know, like right. the sovereign power, sovereign right over life and death, the right to punishment, uh, the, the monopoly of the right to, um, violence. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that always operates, you know, like with black sites too. Right. So that right. like state authority legitimizes the use of violence and yet at the same time it always uses illegitimate violence too right Mm -hmm. i mean and that feels like this ties into something we talked about i i think last time about or in the sax chapter which was the last time it's been so long yes. yes uh you know about like private security right we have this real kind of like muddle between like and and there's no sense here of like appeal to to a law that would save you right um, I, w- I also I love that that this description of uh, Kesai Vallis of the um, the jail on Mars itself comes right after on 252 um, uh, mm. we see um, the east wall of Echo's Chasma was the great escarpment at its absolute greatest a cliff three kilometers tall running in a straight line north and south for a thousand kilometers. The areologists were still arguing over its origin as no ordinary force of landscape formation seemed adequate to have created it. It was simply a break in the fabric of things, separating the floor of Echo's Chasma from the high plateau of Lune Planum. Michel had visited Yosemite Valley in his youth, and he still recalled those towering granite cliffs, but this wall standing before them was as long as the whole state of California and three kilometers high for most of that length, a vertical world, its massive plains of red rock staring out blankly to the west, glowing in each empty sunset like the side of a continent. Um, I mean, and the description goes on, and I think it's a, you know, like, as as usual, like a really beautiful, vivid, intense description. But so we have this, you know, like we've got this vision of this wall, a wall that we can scarcely imagine, only by comparison to something like Yosemite, which seems so, like, you know, marvelous. Mm-hmm. Can we imagine it? And then, you know, on the next page, we get, like, a different version of, like, the a wall, right? Yeah, you know, right. The, the prison. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, and I just, and the, like that, ju- we just get that juxtaposition. Yeah. Like you're not told to think about that. You just have those images in your head together. Well, it's those two things. Yeah, those, yeah, that's a good point. They're in your mind together that the planetariness, the billion year, multi-billion year history of Mars and its planetariness and like these unfathomable, un- indecipherable forces that have created this geology um, on the one hand, and then on the other hand, the all too human right. uh, prison that that they've decided to build into it, right? Right. That this is as far removed from the concerns that Anne or Sachs have about uh, what Mars is and what science is as you could possibly imagine, and that Sachs sort of the center of gravity, one of the two. Uh, what am I trying to say? Bipolar or like, uh, what's the stars that, f- that, uh, two stars that binary, binary, binary gravity, yeah. gravitational pull of the scientific and philosophical, uh, center of these books 
is trapped in the middle right, of this. Right, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and his brain is literally being bombarded by whatever it is, targeted MRI and like some kind of like uh, drug system or something right, like that. Right, right. And that, it, that at the center of all of this is, you know, his brain and extracting information out of it, right? right. Ripping it out of it. Right. Um, in a way that's very violent and destructive of, 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 as we will see, very violent and destructive of, of who Sachs even is. Well, and then that that might make us think back to the prologue and Michelle's invocation mm. of the noosphere and the lithosphere, right, and then the biosphere. Um, and and if you know, like, if we think the operations of consciousness on Mars are, um, you know, the stuff of human culture and intellect and and scientific method and other kinds of inquiry and history. Um, you know, we might think optimistically, but then here we can also think, but the prison, right, um, and the, the the space of torture, right, are also the products of mm-hmm. human consciousness, right? right? And here, this here, what's grown on Mars is like actually something that you know has already grown mm-hmm. on Earth long, yeah. before the science right? of torture, the science of interrogation, oh, yeah, of, of yeah. information extraction. It's so, uh, and, uh, and then of course, which I guess is really set in relief by Coyote's. Uh, tactic for getting Amazing. Them out of there. <laughs> like that's exactly where I was going to go because then the science of of the science of a prison of what would a prison break on Mars look like? Well, it would look like bending the weather to the will of the resistance, like literally creating a weather machine. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> to, so like a James Bond villain, right? <laughs> it's so crazy. So what ends up happening is like, is there is this enormous, so as was just described, this enormous escarpment, this really, really tall ridge, cliff, fjord, whatever it is, I don't know. And the, I think it's not a fjord. The right? wind comes down <laughs> off of it. I was just thinking of Slarty Bartfast from the Witchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. <laughs> Again, so um, I gotta, you got to yeah. give me some more science fiction <laughs> novels so I can have different references. Um, anyway, so uh, the winds come off of the, these catabatic winds, and I was going to look up what catabatic means, but I f- forgot to. It's like, it's like, well, I read some things about catabatic winds and then was not able to retain it because my mind is a sieve. Yeah. Um, but, but they're like winds that come down, I think, off a high cliff. Yeah. Um, and they have a kind of density to them that pushes them down super fast, mm-hmm. I think is what it is. Um, I mean, the first thing that we learn about how there are these crazy like winds here is that people take advantage of them for sport and fly around in yeah. bird suits, yeah. uh, which, you know, is going to continue to be a thing. Yeah, but um, also William Fort. We've already oh, seen right, right, him William flying Fort, around right. uh, him and his uh, 18 immortals. Right, right. But that, I mean, that to me seems a lot less frightening, imagining, you know, like you're off the coast of California yeah. and then you're like plunging off this three kilometer. Oh, I have a, <laughs> my uh, roommate from college is like a, world-class skydiver like he has all these photos and videos uh that he's posting all the time on facebook of like very exotic locations like qatar um he's like part of a team like they do like those kind of like patterns they make they, formations yeah, in they make formations they use bird suits and squirrel suits they <laughs> you know we should have flying, more of more of those those flying squirrel flying suits squirrels. like going they climb up the alpes so not just like gray gray squirrels it's amazing there's no it's like no it's not those kind of, it's not like super mario brothers it's like um there's this video of them like climbing up the side of one of the alps or whatever where there's a <laughs> there's a restaurant right there and they just like go up to the restaurant and they 
they and they're wearing their suits and their and they're <laughs> like uh, backpacks with like are you making this them. up? I swear to God. And then they like just climb over the railing because the railing is right on the edge of this mountain. And there's all these other <laughs> these like patrons watching them. They're wearing helmets and stuff, and they just jump off. And then they like fly through the forests uh, with these like squirrel what? suits. It's totally insane. That's amazing. I'll show you when we get done. With That's this. amazing. Anyway, um, so, so you're yeah, saying you've done this. I have not done this, oh, uh, but uh, uh, my college roommate does it routinely. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so there are more ways of living than you think. That's true. So. Um, Anyway, so there are these, like, intense winds that I do think... I think it actually, like, uh, does it explain... How it works? Yeah, so on, on 254, well, we get yeah. an explanation of catabatic yeah. winds, I think. Um, the prevailing... The prevailing winds in the region were westerlies. When these hit the Echo's Cliff, towering updrafts resulted, and that's when the flyers right. like them. Uh, because, obviously, you want to be flying up and not crashing down right uh but fairly frequently cyclonic systems came by bringing winds from the east and when that happened cold air uh ran over the snow-covered lunae plateau scouring snow and becoming denser and colder until the entire drainage area was funneled out through notches in the great cliff's edge and the winds then fell like an avalanche so that's what a catabatic wind is it's like dense with moisture or something which means it plunges down um, yeah. uh, super abruptly. And then as Coyote says, those idiots built their prison in a wind tunnel. And what, the other thing about the wind, though, is that it it's it's potential for becoming a weapon. I mean, one other thing they do is they install these, like, fans and, like, explosives right. to um, basically kick up a bunch of dust and then also increase the speed of the wind so that it's faster and denser than it would be naturally. But um, another thing about the winds is that they are much more dense. There were, they would have been faster prior to all the terraforming and the adjustment of Mars's atmosphere, but they were not dense. So it right. wasn't, it sort of, the, its effect wasn't as bad. Now the air is denser so that even a slower wind, even though it's like 200 kilometers an hour, um, has a much greater effect. And for me, that's so interesting to try to wrap your mind yeah, around yeah. the density of air and how what what that effect the wind has on you, right? Like, um, right. that's a form of planetary thinking that's really difficult to yeah, do yeah, when yeah. you've only lived on Earth, Yeah, as I have. Yes. Well, and, and, you know, also particularly when you, like, live in a, a really flat place. Right. Like the place that we live. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, but... So, so what Coyote's done basically is this, right, is that, like, the fans are away. They're, they're essentially trying to, like, be able to trigger this catabatic wind effect when they want it. Right. Um, by, under certain conditions. Under certain conditions, they can um, – the fans are meant to put more, like, particulate matter yeah. to make the air right. denser to right. maximize that yeah. effect. So lasers, they're kind of yeah. triggering it. Yeah, lasers make the air hotter, and then uh, the and then the explosives and the fans blow dust in there um, to make it heavier, and um, and then yeah, and then it becomes basically an enormous windstorm that is very difficult to withstand, um, and and also extremely 
destructive. Right. Like it's going right. to smash this this prison uh, to to bits. Right. So um, uh, Art says they must know about these catabatic winds in Kasai. And Coyote says they do, but what they calculated is once a millennium wins, mm-hmm. we think we can create any time right. the initial conditions are there on top. Gorilla climatology, Randolph said, eyes bugged out. What do you call that? Climatage? Attack meteorology? Coyote pretended to ignore him, although Michelle saw a brief grin through the dreadlocks. Yeah, Coyote's starting to like Art uh, against his, you know, <laughs> but he's in a foul mood, so he doesn't want to, 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 to uh, relent yet. But... um. It is also, it's just, you know, again, the things that happen behind the scenes uh, and the size of this place, uh, it's just, what a universe that he's created, that coyote, I climbed down that cliff five times to set it all up. You should have seen it, set up some fans as well. Um, so that this has been, you know, they've been working on this yeah. for a very long, yeah. as soon as they found, as soon as Spencer reported to them what this place right, was. right. They started formulating a plan to to smash it. Right. Um, right. Which is, you know, they have an admiral admirable uh, left activism going on. Yeah. On, <laughs> on Mars. I mean, it makes uh, that uh, uh, Arcadi's notion of guns under the table. Right. Yeah. The the, the weaponry is quite yeah. different, and yeah. and also like you know well, we're seeing here like a variation on like, you know. Uh, whatever the weapons of the powerless, right? What do you do yeah. when you don't have big armaments, right? right? You throw rocks at people. Yeah, right, <laughs> yeah, right exactly. Uh, and like the same happened with the nemesis asteroid from that other faction in Red right. Mars, um, blowing up Phobos, you know, cutting the cable, um, whatever. It's guerrilla it's warfare, whatever right. is left to you. Right. Um, digging up the, the cobblestones or smashing a whole mountain and whatever so the, pl- um, the plan is as coyote says we'll make the rescue the wind will make the attack right nice um and so then at that point it's all just a waiting game right right um and and they are they have a strategy set up so maya and michelle are in one rover um and we stick with them obviously coyote nergal and art and kasai and Dow or yeah uh, are all in a different one and then they and then he also has um some other reds or whoever coming from another area to to affect the rescue as well and so at this point it's just a waiting game and Maya and Michelle are kind of locked in the rover together for a, a few days um waiting for the winds to come and this is when the most kind of um philosophical kind of conversation happens between them and they they um there's this there it's the resurrection of this other idea of that their memories are failing them. right right um right and they you know we have this kind of dynamic between them i mean they end up having sex but, right you know we have this kind of dynamic between them where they are you know they're no their relationship is no longer and has not for a long time been psychiatrist right. and psychiatrist client. and he hasn't even been a psychiatrist and, for a long time and he's time given either. up like since he... he went off with Hiroko right um uh and Maya is as she usually is like extremely hyped up um and Michelle really can't do anything right. about that um uh on on 257 uh they they'd start having conversations about like things that happened when they lived in Underhill. Uh, they could go back and forth like that for a long time until it seemed that they had lived in completely different Underhills. When they both remembered an event, it was cause for cheer. 
All the first hundred's memories were growing spotty, Michelle had noticed, and it seemed to him that most of them recalled their childhoods on Earth better than they did their first years on Mars. They remembered their own biggest events and the general shape of the story, but little incidents that somehow stuck in the mind were different for everyone. Um, which That's a moment where I feel like we're also getting this kind of description of the reader's experience yeah, too, absolutely, right? The yeah. shape, the big events, and then yeah. they're the little things that stick with you that feel like they matter to you. Yeah. Um, Every time I talk about a book with somebody or a movie or anything, it's like the sets of things that we have in common that we remember are completely different. Like it's always the big moments, but yeah. then the little things is always enough to make you question whether you saw it or not. Yeah, right. <laughs> whether Did it you actually see it? Happened. Right. And and what does it mean? You know, you know that you were in the same place in the same time with other people, and yet you don't, in some ways, seem to have actually had the same experience yeah. at all. Right. I, I mean, I think this is a really yeah, I think that this is like a really lovely and interesting variant on all of the questions about history, you know, as well as getting this feeling of here are these people who are power. I mean, they're so old and they're about to like go rescue their friend from prison and yeah. what turns out to be an extremely physically grueling yeah, yeah, operation. Yeah, crazy. Um, you know, like Coyote climbed up and down that giant cliff so many times, like putting his fans and explosives in place, all of these, all of these things. Um, and yet also they are kind of losing their like the anchoring points of like the early days of their story. Yeah. The, um, I mean, Michelle doesn't even remember the Ann and Sachs, the famous Sachs Claiborne <laughs> debate. Right. And then when, when Maya asks, do you remember, or no, he asks her, do you remember when one of the vaulted chambers collapsed? I don't know if I remember that. I don't, remember I don't that know either. if that was even in the book. Maybe it wasn't even in the books. It probably wasn't. Yeah. But, like, that's the whole point. Yeah, right, right, um, exactly. And, like, yeah, the fact that all everyone is living so much longer, now they're in their 120s or something like that. Um, and on 257, memory retention and recollection were getting to be big clinical and theoretical problems in psychology, exacerbated by the unprecedented longevity, longevities now being achieved. Mm. I mean, it's hard enough for me. I'm not even 40 yet, and, like... <laughs> I don't remember hardly oh, I don't, anything. Yeah, I don't remember anything. Um, it's not worth memory remembering. No. Just, just let it go. Let just, it go. Just live in the now. Stumbling forward. Um, uh, and the yeah, uh, and then the childhood thing, and because yeah. they're living, and like most of them recalled their childhoods on Earth better than they did their first years on Mars. So there's this weird relationship between you know those early memories of childhood being uh, so deeply ingrained into you. Uh, that you can't help but remember them. Right. Uh, but then those years also growing farther and farther away. And that Nergal, as we'll see in the next chapter, is at 25, thinks of himself, at 25 Earth years, he's 12 Martian years. He really thinks of himself as a 12-year-old. Right. And um, so that completely reconfigures like what childhood, what childhood even is. is. Yeah. In a way that for me would be like, I think so refreshing since I'm only now feeling that I'm figuring out what in the hell like life in the and doing stuff means or is or you know what I mean are you figuring that out I think so uh, but ask me next week and yeah, I'll probably I have a exactly. different answer for exactly. you exactly well it's interesting I mean I wonder um I was just thinking about the way in which the dreams work in these novels that usually ones not always I mean um, but a lot of the dreams that we see, not that dream that Anne has, but a lot of the prior dreams that we've seen are mem seem to be memories, right? right? That happened in the Frank chapter in, in Red Mars where he's like going over these earlier moments of his life in his dreams. Um, 
which I feel like is, you know, like mostly that's not how dreams work. I mean, they don't really like bring you back a memory in that kind of way. It's usually like, or if it comes out of a memory, it comes out in some kind of different form. Um, and I was just thinking, I wonder if there's a kind of, uh, I wonder if there's a sort of thought here about like the relationship of longevity to having like the recurrence of extremely old memories, you know, like, I mean, I think we do think, you know, people who get quite old remember their childhoods, yeah. right. right. And, yeah. and may have forgotten things, yeah. you know, much closer to them. Right. right? Um, and I don't know, maybe memory science knows something about why that is, but it's Probably. kind of an interesting. Well, we're talking. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, I think this is an interesting idea about like um, personhood, partly because we think of our personhood, our sense of ourselves as persons, our personality um, as being produced in a kind of continuous way, right? That is like, even if we don't remember every detail um, or we've forgotten big chunks of things, nonetheless, you know, I am somehow like the continuous presence in my own life. Um, but this image of the first 100 having the very vivid early memories and being so active in the present that in effect they don't they aren't old people at yeah, all right, right. Um, they're in a constant state of becoming that suggests <laughs> but it suggests a very different version a kind of different version of personhood i yeah. mean maybe another reason why michelle's not a psychiatrist is that like that sort of way of accounting yeah you know, maybe isn't working on this new kind of person. That yeah, it we doesn't have obtain here. anymore. Well, we talked before about like um, memory working as, uh, especially your mo your in emotionally most intense moments are the ones that you actually remember. Right. And so maybe that makes sense of why childhoods are remembered more than like middle life when you know you're just a dead husk of uh, emotionless, um, you know eating and shitting yeah. <laughs> uh, whereas when you're a kid everything's brand new and you have an immediate <laughs> emotional reaction to everything although that seems like then Maya should remember everything right because she has an intense <laughs> emotional reaction to everything but but she you know she talks on that same page about you know uh, that there are things that like she's had to you know really forcibly try not to think about right. it, and that's basically John and Frank yeah. and then she can still be triggered in a traumatic way well those are her most those. emotionally intense things right, right? right and that's the things that she doesn't want to remember at all right and Anne is you know thing that Anne is perfected right um so uh you know and then we get this kind of tender moment about them being in love and blah 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 boring um, although I, I do like and I did want to highlight as an mm -hmm. interesting moment on 258 when um uh, yeah. Michelle, oh, yeah. Michelle says is saying basically like, well, you know, yes, I went, I left with Hiroko and with uh, Evgenia and Raya, all of them, um, and that was in part about sex. But he says also, um, really, it was just in admitting that we had bodies, that we were bodies, working together, seeing and touching each other. I needed that, um, and I, I think I just think that that's an interesting moment of you know for him or maybe for all of them, the Underhill experience, you know, and spending all this time like either like inside or like wearing a suit, yeah. uh, you know, wearing a walker suit, like um, being in a Rover or whatever it is, um, was somehow like, you know, not an experience of having a body or experience that feels like he, it pulled him away from right. the feeling of having a body. Whereas like part of what Hiroko's practice offered was like a kind of, 
acknowledgement of being both a body and a mind at the same time that working together is also about like having bodies mm -hmm. well it was at the bottom of 270 257 she asks him if he was happy when he left with Hiroko I was certainly it was a matter of admitting things I had tried to suppress in Underhill we, that we are animals that we are sexual creatures so that um, body being a body being an animal and being a sexual creature are all basically homologous homologous right right and that part of the project of sending the first hundred into space as it was conceived was they're not supposed to couple up you know, they're, they're, they, they, everyone knew inevitably that they would do that, but that this was a scientific mission and right, science right. is somehow asexual. You're a pure creature of the mind. Right. But then also, so once that coupling up or like grouping up or whatever and like trading sexual partners and having that kind of like uh, uh, conflict and, and interpersonal social behavior happens, uh, you're still just left with the same hundred people. Right, right, right. So right. similar to the way that the children of Zygote are inextricably linked in ways that no one outside of them could ever be, mm -hmm. that they're mm -hmm. more than brothers and sisters, but also uh, irrevocably brothers and sisters, that they're sexual, but not supposed to be sexual. Same goes with the first hundred. And the same goes for like the way that they can instantly recognize each other. Yeah, and They yeah. instantly recognize each other, not through their voices or their words, but through their bodies and how they hold each other or, or how they hold themselves, right, how they stand, right. walk, move their head to one side, something like that. So that um, there's a constant push, pull, pressure against acknowledging the body, the sexuality, the animal, mm -hmm, um, while mm -hmm. at the same time not ever being able to, to completely uh, uh, reject that or forget about it because it is um, inextricably linked with how you recognize a person. Right, right, right. right. Um, we are bodies and we are also minds trapped in bodies. And that's like the, I mean, that's not the mind body split. That's like the mind the mind body right right I don't know. right right the body mind right body i think mind. that that's like uh yeah i mean and i like that although michelle says oh we're animal it's also about like the, an, an acknowledgement that just the things that we do with other people are also done in and through our bodies right, right? that there's something that's deeply like embodiment is not a problem of like yeah. individuality right embodiment is actually like this very like um it's collective, right? Right. It's, you know... Uh, yeah, it's not a problem of individuality. It's a condition of being a collective being. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which I think, it's just an interesting note here. You know, once again, like this, like, really interesting. They're having this conversation in this incredibly confined space. Um, and also, while their friend is, you know, having his uh, brain altered. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um so we should we should probably move to the so rescue. The right? rescue is incredible. Oh so my God. the the wind starts, and they and it's all a race against the clock, right? And they have to be at a certain place at a certain time, and then the wind starts, and as soon as they get out of the rover, it's remarkably difficult to move. Incredibly dusty, so much dust blowing, and they basically get out and can't. They have to like uh, crouch in order to be able to move for right. kilometers. Yeah. Many, multiple kilometers they have to crouch and crawl over this like dark uh, martian planetary surface and they have themselves attached to the rover by they call it their ariadne thread ariadne thread um but they can barely see what they're doing they're getting literally knocked down mm -hmm. by the um wind 
Um, and they're having to sort of like fumble their way through these incredibly intense conditions uh, to get to the place where they're supposed to make their uh, inroads into the tent. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh, and then they, they both get these little guns from their pockets and burst open the tent, basically, the elastic fabric of the tent. They disconnected the phone cord. They're attached not only to the rover, but to each other through right. a phone cord so that they can actually communicate. Right. Uh, incredibly awkward. Um, they burst the tent open uh, and power to the, to the prison has been cut. The windows are all, there's no lights in the windows dust flying everywhere they finally make it into place they have to like shoot a couple guys with tasers mm-hmm. um they have to find spencer because they have to extract him because he's their man on the inside right right uh and all of this by the way is made possible by the mere fact that sax i mean it's made necessary and possible by the fact that sax is there right like if sax weren't there they wouldn't have to do this but also because Sax is there and they know, and the bad guys basically know that the underground is so big, they can do it in a way that is as audacious and violent yeah, as yeah, possible. Yeah, right, right. right? They, they don't have to sneak around. They don't have to be elegant about this in, any more than they already have been in installing right. giant lasers right. and fans <laughs> right, in this right. mountain over a period of years. Right. Um, they can just, it's a smash and grab job, as they say. Right, although, you know, it's so, so they're, in theory, it seems like they're trying to find Spencer and they're hoping that Spencer will lead them to where Saks right. is. But they get themselves um, through these just like incredible conditions, like looking at everything through their infrared displays in their helmets. Uh, mm-hmm. They first find the place where Spencer has told them that Saks uh, will be, right? Mm-hmm. So they don't find Spencer first. Um, and so on, two, on 266... Um, uh, they came to the door of another room, and Michelle pointed. Maya held out her pistol in both hands and nodded her readiness. Michelle kicked the door in, and Maya rushed through with Michelle close after her. There was a figure in a suit and helmet standing by what looked like a surgical gurney, working over the head of a recumbent body. Maya shot the standing figure several times, and it crashed down as if struck by fists and then rolled over on the floor, contorted by muscular spasms. They rushed the man on the gurney. It was Saks, although Michelle recognized him by his body mm-hmm. rather than his face, which was a death mask apparition with two blackened eyes, a mashed nose between them. He appeared unconscious at best. Um, and then he is uh, restrained and also has these electrodes stuck on him, and Maya just, like, you know, rips all of this stuff off, mm-hmm. and they're, like, bundling him into a suit. They can scarcely tell whether he's alive or not. Um, and the person who uh, has been knocked down by the the taser shot um, is on the floor. Uh, Maya goes over and kicks her to keep her down. She leaned over and looked in the faceplate, cursed in a surprised voice. It's Phyllis. Oof, man. Yeah. Um, uh, they 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 get Sax out. Spencer pops up in the in the uh, hallway after in front of them. They almost shoot him. No, no, it's me. Um, nobody can hear anybody because they're all wearing these helmets. Right. And then um, Spencer says that uh, they had gotten what they wanted from Saks and then they were going to kill him. And then at that point, Maya goes back, throws in a grenade, basically, yep. and yep. blows Phyllis to smithereens. No, Spencer cried. That was Phyllis. I know, Maya shouted viciously, but Spencer couldn't hear her. Um, and, and, and then from there, the three of them 
have to make it back to the rover taking turns carrying sacks right. on their back because this, they're all through this crawling. chaos yeah, yeah through the chaos um and they get back at like 4 a.m or something like that um spencer's really mad at maya for killing right. phyllis right and of course spencer has been on the inside for this whole time um and there is this sense that like one of the first hundred has killed another member of the first hundred there's this revisitation of the Cain and Abel thing and that um there has been I don't know if it where it is in this chapter but there's also been suspicion that Maya has was the responsible for killing I think that's the next chapter yeah isn't it I think so but yeah that's that is in the next chapter but that because we learned that we learned that from uh, from Nergal right right um, but that, um, you know, that this is like a, another kind of original sin that members of the first hundred don't kill each other, even though Phyllis was actively torturing right. Sachs. Right. But then Spencer has this really weird, um, response. Uh, you can't just yank people out of those probes. You're very likely to damage them. You should have waited until I got there. You didn't know what you were doing. We didn't know whether you would come, Maya said. You were late. Not by much. You didn't have to panic like that. We didn't panic. Then why did you tear... Uh, then Spencer, then why did you tear him out of there? And why did you kill Phyllis? She was a torturer, a murderer. Spencer shook his head violently. She was just as much a prisoner as Sachs. Mm. She was not. You don't know. You killed her just because of how it looked. You're no better than they are. Fuck that. <laughs> They're the ones torturing us. You didn't stop them, and so we had to. So, I, you know, where, where Spencer's coming from in all of this is really curious and really... I, yeah. I don't remember how it plays out yeah. after, re, like, having read these, these books last year. Um, so I don't remember how that plays out or, or if it ever gets explained, but whether there's a kind of, like... Stockholm syndrome going on there or whether there is something more to Phyllis it seems impossible based on what we've seen from Phyllis and who she is it seems impossible that there would be something redemptive that would have said no you shouldn't have killed her right when we know from the Sachs chapter that she did order Sachs's torture yeah right yeah Um, or this way of extracting memories Um, and we have this kind of um, you know the the scene is so like Spencer is partly angry because he thinks that they should have gotten sex out of there in a more judicious way. Although given everything that we've seen leading up to that, like how would it have been possible and that he was not there when they right. arrived? Like you yeah. should have waited. You should yeah, have it's known hard to that think I was going to be there. Just like, thought like, I'm going to get these electrodes off my friend and get him into a suit so he doesn't die. And it's a miracle. Get him out of here. I mean, for me, it's like a miracle that they even found him among all that chaos. Oh, and like, yeah, I like, know. There's multiple know. buildings in this place. Like, it's a whole prison complex. It's a miracle that they, it's very convenient for the story. Uh, well, and the, <laughs> in the generic kind of way. The, uh, um, you know, and Spencer and Maya are reduced to like just like very childish yeah. arguing. Right, right, At the right. same time as we get registered sort of mostly from Michelle's point of view that like they're all not just Sachs, who seems like on the verge of death, but they're all extremely damaged, yeah. uh, cut, frostbitten. Right. Um, uh, 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 Michelle, uh, Michelle thinks, thinks he's con- concussed. concussed. He feels nauseated. Um, you know, <laughs> trembling. They're clearly also in like a kind of like post-traumatic, like, right. uh, you know, just overwhelmed moment. And the chapter ends with Michelle saying, uh, what's done is done. Now we have to get home. We have no home, Maya snarled. Right. I mean, and the chapter is called Homeless. Right. Um, 
and it's it's interesting to me because that's a that doesn't although we begin in that prologue with like Michelle looking at the little bit of Provence right and thinking Provence Mars Provence Mars right. or whatever which I guess is a thought about home mm-hmm. we have this thing about memory and childhood uh, but it's not totally clear why Maya's feeling at the end is we have no home right yeah I mean I think it's a what it's 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 a metaphysical quality right right. Uh, Pla- that they've become placeless, you know. Yeah. Even they're, though they still have, you I mean, know, they, they still have gamete and they still have, you know. But it's an ideological homelessness. It's a it's a homelessness of not belonging anywhere, of being on the run. Now, I mean, they have gamete for now, but right. the location of gamete has presumably been extracted from sacks. And even if it hasn't been, they have no way of knowing that. Right. So they, they right. can't actually go back to gamete with any confidence or regularity right. um and then also there's the kind of ideological homelessness of you know phyllis is one of supposed to be one of us and yet she clearly wasn't and right. we just and i just killed her um and you know that means that there's a fundamental i mean what is home it's a kind of concreteness from which you can base your identity yeah from. yeah right exactly and uh you know michelle is searching for that and trying to impose provence onto on top of mars and maya um you know it's funny thinking about maya's like the long durée of her character too as being like a, a child of the soviet union at the end of the soviet union right right um that kind of all that stuff we got in Red Mars about um, the Soviet superwoman uh, trying to like wrangle men and, and right. be you know I forget what the all the kind of lingo was but like you know uh, as being fundamentally homeless this whole time of the Soviet Union collapsing of going back back and forth between John and Frank mm-hmm. of fee, of being the head of the Soviet of the Russian contingent of the first hundred and right. therefore being. Um, ostracized from it because she was, in, you know, nominally nominally in charge, um, and so never being able to fully integrate into it. Uh, I think it, like it speaks a lot to like just how Maya conceives of herself right, as well. Right, right, and you know this this chapter gives us a different. I mean, we talked in the Anne chapter um, and in the Sax chapter about the kind of. Um, you know, relations between thought and action. When when do you realize that you have to take action and action in this kind of sense of like uh, being political? Um, and here we have this intensely action-filled chapter, not only human action, but the action of the wind, right? Um, uh, and at the end of it is just this kind of like, you know, they've taken action. They've done what it felt like they had to do. There was a plan. Mm -hmm. Um, and at the end there's shock. Mm -hmm. Um, there's harm. Mm -hmm. There's the possibility that what they did it for, there was no point. Yeah. Right. You know, I mean, and this really interesting way in which like, yeah, Phyllis is dead. Maya has killed Phyllis. Um, uh, uh, and this entire operation was undertaken if the information was, I mean, it was not really undertaken to like get Sachs out before the information got taken out of him. It was just to rescue him. Right. Right. And maybe just to rescue his body. And that there we have this kind of like, yeah, this is a different version of what really matters. Something that matters to them is, is just like their lives, you know, and they're, they're kind of like 
comradely connection to each other, you know? And in that, on those grounds, you know, like if you have to rescue Saks for that reason, you know, you can see why Spencer from a different perspective thinks it's bad that they killed Phyllis and she was part of them too. I think from Maya's perspective, she was, you know, she, you know, relinquished her place in the first 100, right? right? Um, but that's an interesting, it takes us back to like Michelle saying like, you know, being allowed to remember that we all had bodies and that mm -hmm. we were embodied together, right? Um, and then at the end, like they're so divided in the rover in that confined space. Yeah. It's an upsetting chapter. It's, yeah, it's very upsetting. Even though, you know, I mean, Phyllis being dead doesn't seem Phyllis to being me. dead, it's action packed. <laughs> it's like a coyote heavy chapter, which I always like. Yeah. Him oh, doing yeah. badass yeah. stuff. Um, and it's an Art Randolph chapter. Who, oh, yeah. And we all know how I feel about Art Randolph. You like Art Randolph. Okay, so that's the end of this episode. That's right. And uh, next time we're going to be talking about part six. Part is that six. right? Terracott. Terracott. Uh, this is a Nergal chapter. A Nergal chapter. And it, we're still traveling around in rovers. Yeah. And uh, we still have um, much of the same cast of characters from this chapter continues into the next chapter. That's right. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at podcast on mars and you can email us at gmail at marooned on mars podcast at gmail.com yes you can um uh you can rate and review us on itunes Ooh, rate and review or google, on play. google play yeah and uh you can uh just enjoy yourself yeah just, most of all just, just please do that yeah you know and uh we will see you next time absolutely bye bye Oh, my God.